Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Corey Grayson. She is currently completing her postdoc at the University of Michigan in chemical engineering. Prior to this, she graduated from Norfolk State University with a degree in chemistry and then went on to Cornell where she earned her PhD in biomedical engineering. Dr. Grayson, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me and I'm honored and glad to be your first PhD. So I'm excited to dive in. Awesome. Let's dive right in. So where did it all begin? When did you decide to go into science? That is a good question, and I get asked that often. And I always tell people, like, honestly, it was late. I wish I was one of those kids, like, yeah, I had a chemistry set, or I looked up at the stars every night when I was a kid with my parents and knew, or I just had this thing. But no, honestly, in the beginning, I really kind of was just moving through school, moving through academics. Honestly, even in high school, I really didn't like high school. I was just ready to get out of there. Anything I could do, like, please just let me leave and go do something else. You know, just live a different kind of life. Oh, we, we got we to gotta edit this part out of the show. You said what? Well, you got to be encouraging the youth. <laughs> well, no, I like to be real because I feel like people sometimes start off thinking that that's how it started was early but for me it wasn't until later so actually I got to high school um, my senior year my guidance counselor put me in a whole bunch of AP courses so you know your senior year you want to relax and like kind of you know skip school or just only do half a day but no I was in there all day every day taking AP chemistry AP calculus and AP literature and actually had two my well three of those teachers were very kind of enthusiastic, um, as well as provide us different confidence boosts and saying that we could do and excel in these like different areas. So my chemistry teacher uh, really was like this young, vibrant woman that just like was super excited about chemistry. And so I think that was when I first initially had a liking towards that, I guess, science or particular STEM field. But it wasn't until I got to college and mm-hmm. I actually started off as a biology major, but I took a general chemistry course, and the professor in that course had like a very profound impact on me. And she actually took the concepts we were learning and applied them to real life situations, which is why I love chemistry. So for her, it was like, you know, what can you take from this and actually apply it to your real life? So do you know what's in a relaxer, how a relaxer works? Breaking down the disulfide bonds in your hair. You know, because at the time, we was walking, relaxing. People aren't napping yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Or did you know how Not antifreeze yet. works? Or do you know, you know, that's freezing point depression. Do you know how this works and how this applies to this? And it really made me look at science as something like, oh, okay, this actually does have real world applications that I can use in my life. And so I ended up switching my major to chemistry because of her. She was super confident, all of like five feet. Uh, wore heels every day to class. I don't know how she did it, but she just had this like six foot seven personality that really kind of encouraged the students mm-hmm. and including me to just be as, as I guess, as vulnerable, but also as uh, curious about the world as we could be. She used to say this thing like, you know, even when I'm wrong, I'm right. And we, at first I never really got that thing, but she was telling us 
she has so much confidence in what she does that even if she says or does something wrong, you're going to believe that she's right. So she was hard on us in that class because she knew the world was going to be harder. So that was actually my first reason and yeah. why that I got into STEM and stayed. Wow. So representation really does matter. It does. It really does. And so, like I said, I was fumbling around in the beginning for a minute, but, you know, I found my path. And sometimes it takes those people, those mentors that see something specific in you and pull that out of you or to help you change your direction to where you're supposed to be on your path. And uh, did that influence your uh, decision to get involved currently with Women Doing Science? Yeah, so Women Doing Science is a popular IG account page where we feature women literally from all over the world just to increase the visibility of women in STEM because it is very male-dominated. So being a part of that and wanting to help diversify and show that there are different types of women that look all different kind of ways, that come from all different kind of backgrounds that are in STEM and in these fields that we don't normally see, it really helps with showing that representation does matter whether, you know, you're a young girl or even an older person, um, really to see women doing things that you normally wouldn't to change that narrative and change that perception. So, I mean, that was kind of a branch off from that, but that didn't happen until maybe like 2017, 2018. But yes, I think I carry some of the sentiments from my general chem teacher as far as her being a representation of what I could be and taking that page and showing a representation of young girls of what they could be. Well, I am following this Instagram account right yeah. now. <laughs> Please do. And we're doing some exciting things. We even are doing a travel fund slash grant for BIPOC or Black Indigenous People of Color to attend Earth and Geosciences conferences and to receive mentorship. So we're currently in the fundraising process for that as well, which is super exciting. Let's go back to Norfolk State. Mm-hmm. I love to talk about the HBCU experience as so many of the folks I've been able to talk to um, have had such an incredible, rewarding experience. So what led you to attend Norfolk State University and what was your experiences there? Right. So when I actually was applying to colleges, my good old guide counselor again, she made me apply to a whole bunch of different schools at like 14 or 15. And Norfolk State was one of them. I actually got into all of those schools and received over 400000 in scholarships. And so me and my mom, we did wow. a tour and we did visited some of the different schools. And my actually top school was Emory. Uh, but after having like a real conversation about finances and and what that meant at that time, especially being a first-generation student, I realized Norfolk State was the best choice for me, which was actually the school down the street, because they were the only college that gave me a full ride to do STEM. So that was the major decision and why I chose Norfolk State University, and literally one of the best decisions, because being in a space where you can have people that can relate to you is literally life-changing, and also that looks like you. So we were either first generation, maybe low income, maybe high income, um, first scientists in our family. We all had this relation or a way we could relate to each other that I don't think normally would be met sometimes at a PWI or other institutions. Yeah. And so, again, having, like I met my best friends in college, roommates with them, struggled through general chemistry with them, analytical, physical, organic, all those chemistries. <laughs> But yet we would still, you know, <laughs> go party, go to a hot box, a sweat box, you know, go go out, go live life, go to the beach. Because since we're, we were in Norfolk and, you know, just have yeah. 
yeah. those types of things and that culture there. And there's just that uplifting thing that you normally wouldn't always get. Like, I tell you all the time, I saw my family members and when I went to school, when, whether it was talking to the janitorial staff or my teacher or the director of my program or even just people in my class. You know, I saw my cousins, my mom, my aunts, my uncles. I saw everybody. So, again, that familiarity, that comfort, and also that cultural competency just makes you feel more confident in who you are as a person and definitely made me who I am as a scientist. I always tell people HBCU experience is like no other experience. And if you weren't able to go, that's okay. Go to a homecoming. That's a close second. second. (laughs) Yeah, just make sure you go to the the best homecoming, greatest homecoming on earth. Up at uh, Howard University. Oh, this but. is okay. I've been once, you know, and you guys are a very good show. The production quality, I'll give it, you know, a good, good quality. But nothing like a Norfolk State homecoming. We're very intimate, but we still get a pop in. I'm just going to throw that out there. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to put it on the list. Okay. <laughs> Definitely. You should. Dr. Grayson said so. Yeah. <laughs> so coming out of Norfolk State, you are looking to go into a, a PhD graduate program. How was that uh, process for you? So that, again, wasn't a very straightforward process. And I don't know, maybe I might have to edit this out. But I actually graduated thinking I was going to go to med school. I applied to MD, PhD programs, didn't get into any of them, realized medical school wasn't really a dream or a passion of mine because I had shadowed an OBGYN for like, the end of my senior year and realized like, <laughs> I don't think I can do this. I really don't think this is my calling. And so I kind of struggled for the first year after I graduated. And I worked a lot of mm-hmm. odd-in jobs. I worked at Macy's, I worked at SunTrust, just trying to basically like survive. And then after that, I actually was lucky and got a job at a biomedical device company called Cryolife in Kennesaw, Georgia. They had a satellite office off the campus or near the campus of Georgia Tech. So I worked there for almost a year doing the assembling and manufacturing of a hero graft or like a dialysis uh, graft um, that patients use when they have undergone central vein stenosis. So it was basically a day-to-day process of manufacturing and assembling this whole three components of the device. But while I was there, I realized in order to kind of rising the ranks at that company, I either had to be there for a long time or I had to get a higher degree. So my kind of choice was, let me go ahead and get either a master's or a PhD or something. So I ended up applying to different PhD programs instead of a whole bunch like I did for MD-PhD. I only did three. And then luckily, Cornell was one and they said yes. And after that, I quit my job moved to Ithaca, New York, and then I started my grad school program. Um, and that had its own challenges also because I was a chemistry major. I didn't have an engineering background. So I spent a good portion of my PhD taking uh, basic or intro engineering classes to kind of gain that engineering background that most BME people have. And so again, I would like to tell people like, you know what, this is the plan, this is what I did, I went straight there. I feel like my journey had a lot of ups and downs and moments of like, I guess, where I was looking for clarity, I was looking for purpose, and eventually I found it. And I'm I'm still finding it. Like, yeah, here I am at a postdoc, but who knows what the journey or what lies ahead and how that may change. But I'm just open to what 
uh, life has for me and where I need to go and kind of where it's calling me. Thank you. I, I learned something every episode. <laughs> and so far, I've learned how to pronounce uh, Ithaca. <laughs> there you go. I've been calling it Ithaca I, I my whole life. So, <laughs> And then Ithaca, New York is way different from Atlanta, Georgia. Way different from NHBCU. There's a stark difference. And so also having that being, I guess, a part of my journey and like transitioning into a place where now I am the minority and dealing with different things like microaggressions or you're not really seeing the representation that you normally would, I think just had a big impact on me. And one of the reasons why I'm so adamant about showing that representation matters and advocating for people, especially underrepresented minorities in STEM, to be in this space because I was in a space sometimes where I didn't always see it. Um, so that's a lot of where my passion kind of comes from. Absolutely. It's so incredibly important. Mm -hmm. So you got into this PhD program. I'm under the impression that PhD programs are free or there's some funding. Could you, could you explain more about that? Sure. So for most STEM PhD programs, um, and those are usually rooted in the hard, like physical sciences, the funding is usually uh, provided by the graduate school and also either your advisor or through fellowships and grants. So basically, mm -hmm. if you want to do a PhD in that field, you can basically get it done for free. Now, master's, not so much. Usually master's programs you have to pay for, but PhD programs are usually funded. You're funded somehow, some way. And like I said, you can also do like a graduate assistantship or a teaching assistantship. Either way, you're going to get paid for. I was lucky enough to get two fellowships, the NSFDRFP and as well as Alfred P. Sloan. So that offered me six years of funding to where my advisor didn't have to pay for me. The only thing he, quote unquote, I guess paid for was like the research tools and instruments and stuff that I used. But as far as my stipends and what I lived off of, I had fellowships that helped me with that. How, how did you get those fellowships? I applied. So before I actually started grad school, my friend, um, Dr. Byron, he told me, like, you need to apply to, you know, NSF. And I was like, okay, but I'm not in school. He's like, that's fine. You don't have to be. Um, so I just applied, kind of made up my own research project on the spot. And I ended up getting it before I started grad school. <laughs> and then when I applied to Cornell, the uh, graduate research assistant that was basically kind of helps run the program. She was like, you need to apply to the phone fellowship too. She's like, I really think you would get it. And I'm like, uh, I don't want to do any more applications. But she's like, no, apply. And so I applied also. And when I got in, they said, okay, you also got this fellowship as well. So it was really someone, again, mentor, telling me what I needed to do, how I needed to do it. And I did it. And then I ended up getting that funding. So when you hit the ground running, you don't you don't know what your thesis project is going to be, correct? So how did that um, transpire in, during the years of your, your studying? So it can happen in a number of ways. For me, did I know at the beginning what my thesis was going to be? No. Do some people have more of an idea and they come in with a project that their PI has in mind for them or already has funding for? Yes. So it can happen in different yeah. kind of ways. So for me, um, at the time, my PI didn't have a specific 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 projects you wanted me to work on. So it was kind of me figuring out things that I was interested in and what direction I could go in that, you know, eventually did have funding or would have funding for it. 
So my, even my thesis proposal, and so your thesis proposal is when you propose to your committee, like, hey, this is what I'm going to do for my PhD. This is what I have collected so far. You know, here's just basically the work that I've done and what I think I will do in the future. Even my thesis mm-hmm. proposal that stage is totally different from my actual defense. things just change the idea that you have may not actually work you have to kind of pivot into a different direction and you know also can depend on funding directions and that changing as well so again what i proposed at my thesis proposal which was protein engineering ended up not being what my dissertation was with cancer drug resistance two totally different things some of the same elements but a different product but i was super happy and proud of this work because it was a lot of the work that I did and thought of myself with the help of my advisor. But again, you can pivot, it can change. So I tell people all the time, don't get too sometimes invested in a project and be able to shift and pivot towards something that you know is more likely to work or that will yield you the results to graduate. Because at the end of the day, the point is getting the PhD, not staying in yeah. for so long. And be, you know, it's really to just get that work done, adding knowledge to the field, and then getting the PhD at the end of it. So that's kind of how it works for some people. Some people, it's a little bit more smoother. Some, you have to be a little bit more innovative and creative. Just a a toss-up sometimes. So for you, how long did it take you to earn your PhD? And what would you say to students that may be um, worried about the length of time it may take? So for me, it took five years and 10 months to the day I defended. 226 pages of the dissertation <laughs> and an hour-long thesis defense with about a 30-minute afterwards, a closed defense or where I answered questions from my committee members. And honestly, I mean, that's a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I had for six years, so I was okay with that. But it's usually average is about five to six years in uh, the BME field. It could be longer. It could be shorter, depending on what field you're in. But that's usually the average five to six. And I knew that going in. And so I know a lot of people are like, oh, that's such a long time. And But it really flies by. Next, you know, year after year, you're, you know, doing better or your experiment's not working. Or maybe you have a different, you know, change in passions or project ideas. You're doing collaborations, you're publishing papers, you're doing conference presentations, and next thing you know, six years is gone. Yeah. But the good, I, I would say that a PhD is one of the biggest self-discovery journeys you can go on. So those five years, 10 months was definitely the moment where I became the most self-aware, the most cognizant of my personal space, personal time self-care as also, you know, my limits, my abilities, my strengths, my leadership skills, like just so many different things that I probably wouldn't have been that aware of if I hadn't gone through this process or any kind of, you know, graduate school process. So people that think like, oh, six years is such a long time. And for me, six years to get a PhD is is worth it because I feel like afterwards I've kind of written my own ticket and I can do whatever I want to do and go wherever I want to go after this. So it's not so much about the time. I think it's more about the experiences and the journey about what you can do in this field. And it doesn't always have to be limited to research. I mean, I definitely worked mm-hmm. in different jobs while I was doing a PhD. I was the LSAM grad coordinator. I worked with underrepresented students and try to get them you know, excited about grad school or moving on to different other parts of their life. I lived in the dorm. That was free housing, free meal plan. 
you know, trying to save money. And then just so many different things. I started off doing women doing science and the STEM new R. I just, this whole time period allowed me to also pursue my different passions as well as do my research. So I don't look at so much as a time frame. It's just more about a journey and about something that you want to do and that you want to accomplish. And I'm not going to lie. I'm into my PhD. I was like, no, at this point, <laughs> I just want to do it for clout. Just call me doctor and leave me alone. <laughs> Now, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it. It's something, one of the greatest achievements of my life so far. And it's something now that I can show that other people can do it. Because if I can do it, they can. And so I get messages all the time. You know, I want to go into biomedical engineering because of you, or I'm inspired and I want to do this program, or can you tell me about mm-hmm. the program we're in, which is the reason why I do it and I talk about it. So it's more, it's a bigger picture. It's more than just me and my personal journey or how much time I'm spending. It's about showing women, men, minorities that, you know, they can do it too. Yeah. Step by step. Um, and then all those wins that you have along the way kind of encourage you to keep going. Right. Right. Exactly. As well as my mom. My mom stays on me. Even as I'm 30 years <laughs> old, doesn't let up. <laughs> Shout out to mom. Where would we be without our mothers? Right. right. So coming out of Cornell, you, you successfully defended your thesis, your dissertation, your hour and a half. And then you moved on to where you're at currently, University of Michigan, where you're completing a postdoc in chemical engineering. Could you explain the concept of postdoctoral work and what your, your future plans are? Yes. So with a postdoc, you are basically doing work post your doctorate. Um, But what it is is more of like a training position to get you ready for transitioning into academia. So you no longer have the worries of like school or meeting certain requirements for how you did in your doctor program, but now you're like a full-time researcher. But the thing that gets added on your plate is now you're writing grants. You're trying to get funding for your own projects, which is the beginning of how a lab gets established. So it's training you to go into that type of academia of starting at, you know, an assistant professor, associate professor, going to being tenured, full professor, that kind of process. So I wasn't necessarily going to go this route, but I had a conversation with my new and current PI, Lola Eniolatafeso, and I just loved her energy, loved the project, Love talking to the lab and having conversations with them about their work. And that pushed me to go in this direction and come to the University of Michigan. And also the fact that my advisor is a black woman and we can relate on that. And so I, um, again, just to see someone that looks like me, relates to me doing her thing mm-hmm. in the chemical engineering, biomedical engineering field, was just a huge draw for me. And letting me know my journey kind of isn't done in academia yet. Although, who knows what will happen, but, you know, it's just a a moment and a period for me to kind of test out whether I really want to stay in academia and go the professor route or move on to something else. But in all, that's pretty much what a postdoc is. Awesome. We're going to definitely stay tuned to see uh, where you end up and we'll be following along. We'll we'll post your um, links to your socials in the show notes, but and then on top of everything you do, you make time to share this knowledge and information through different speaking engagements and workshops that you put on. Could you tell us more about those? Sure, sure. So 
So I definitely have a few, you know, speaking topics and things that I'm super passionate about. Um, one of them is self-advocacy and practicing that um, in STEM and academia. And so I feel a lot of times people have a hard time actually, you know, dealing with themselves and advocating for themselves. And so ways that you can go about doing that is, one, first you got to get to know yourself. Who are you? What are things that are the identifiers, you know, that make you who you are? Then knowing your needs and your values, and then lastly, knowing how to get them. And usually my favorite part of that talk, and sometimes I also do a workshop, is giving people real-life examples and ways in order to better advocate for themselves. And so once they can actually put that into practice, Things like different microaggressions or moments where they feel inadequate or they feel even bullied, they can have the proper tools to be like, hey, this is unacceptable. I shouldn't be treated like this or just different ways to deal with confrontation. And so that's one project and one speaking topic I'm super passionate about. And I do speak engagements and workshops on that all the time. Uh, ways, another one is ways you can climb the ivory tower, especially doing that as a person of color, what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And also my personal journey and story, as well as being a first-generation student and how to navigate, you know, this world that is been around for, you know, hundreds of years. And so these are just a few things I like to, to talk about and kind of really infuse my personal journey and how that shaped me and give people as much advice as I can. And even communication, what that looks like, science communication, how to communicate your project to a late audience. So I talk to middle schoolers, I talk to elementary schoolers, and as well as high schoolers about my research, but I do it in a way that they can relate to it or understand it. Nice. And so that, you know, also practice as well. These are just some of the things I have brewing and currently brewing and always open to, you know, doing more. I, I realize I... Although I used to have a fear of speaking in high school. Like, you know how your voice is like super high and pitches out? My voice used to do that. <laughs> but now I've become more seasoned and realize it's important to share your message and not keep it hidden. Um, my journey is not just for me. It's for everybody. And it's my story to share with everyone. And so I do that through these, you know, different av- avenues. And so I'm always super excited to speak you know, to, to an audience. That is uh, so true and so very important. And I know this very short podcast episode doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of your story and your journey and your struggles and your successes. So for folks interested, I, you know, definitely they should contact you. What's the best way to get in touch with you regarding these workshops or speaking engagements? Sure. The best way is through my website at uh, CoreyGrayson.com. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter. I even have a little TikTok, although I'm not that active on it. But all of my <laughs> social media is Team Corey, T-E-A-M-K-O-R-I-E. And you can also follow me on LinkedIn there as well. So I'm on the different socials. got to diversify. But, you know, these are all the ways you can see what I'm doing, when I'm doing, and how I'm doing. Awesome. And then you, you're also, a couple of side things that you do is the STEM Noir. Yes. Stem Noir is something I kind of picked up after doing Women Doing Science. Um, the co-founder, Keelan, or Dr. Bishop, reached out to me. And basically what that is, is a research and holistic wellness conference for Black women in STEM. You know, sometimes we don't always fit in the woman's space or in the minority space. So it was great to kind of cultivate and create a conference specific to us and for us and curated for us. 
So we're actually in the planning phase of that now, and it will be convening this summer, June 24th through the 26th. And so people want to register and present at that. That's amazing. Um, also, Black and Cancer. So Black and Cancer is a part of the Black and X movement that happened over the summer when we were having our social justice issues and Black Lives Matter being revamped. And so that was just basically show, showcasing, um, kind of strengthening our networks, uh, specifically of Black cancer researchers, doctors, patients, survivors, and just, you know, talking about our experiences with cancer, our research, some of the myths and things that kind of go along that affect the Black community or Black population. So super excited about that. So many great things happening with Black and cancer, so stay tuned. And then the last one is STEM Success Summit. So STEM Success Summit is a virtual kind of conference that we do. But this is specific for uh, young adults ages 18 to 35. Last year, we had 2,000 attendees or registrants. And we had a very, what I call a hype conference, okay? This is a just typical conference. We had DJs. We had musical performance, <laughs> STEM professionals. We had Tatiana Ali from Fresh Prince talk. We had Ija Sandu who did the marathon store with Nikki Hustle talk. We also did Beyonce's uh, website for Ivy Park, made that uh, virtual reality. I mean, we had some heavy hitters. Wow. And so we're super excited about this year. We just um, nailed in Dr. Kismekia Corbett, who is the lead for the Moderna vaccine um, at NIH. And so we're about to have a few more speakers and we're trying to come even harder this year. So those are just some of the things that I'm a part of, you know, that, again, kind of spread that message of, you know, representation matters and we need to increase the diversity as well as some of the fun that happens with STEM. That is incredible. Uh, love the work that you're doing and, and the exposure you're bringing to the field. Uh, Dr. Corbett, she's been amazing. Um, yeah. You know, obviously, I found out about her with COVID and, and all the stuff that she's doing. You, you posted about her recently and I died <laughs> laughing. Something about uh, you guys were on a video yeah. call. and <laughs> Yes, we were having a call about the conference and she felt comfortable enough to get on with her body. And I loved it because, you know, sometimes we don't always feel comfortable, you know, being ourselves and she was being authentic and that's what she, she felt like being that day. And I, I can totally appreciate and understand because my hair was in a bonnet less than 30 minutes later. So, <laughs> yeah, it was a great experience. Yeah, love to see. I'm so happy you shared that moment with everybody because that's, you know, it's really what it's all about is, is we, we are regular people underneath everything else. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We might start a Dr. Bonnet club. We'll see. I might. All right. <laughs> Here for it. Well, Dr. Grayson, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I truly enjoyed uh, picking your brain and, and hearing your story. And we will definitely be posting all the links in the show notes and um, encourage anybody interested, please reach out, ask questions, sign up for this uh, STEM Noir conference and, you know, look into having her come speak to your organization or, or recommending she speak to an organization that, uh, you know, is looking for some some encouragement and motivation. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.